Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hills with Latter-day Saint Perspectives Podcast, and I'm here today with Emil Harker to discuss techniques to improve our communication skills and our relationships. I'm going to tell listeners right now that this interview is going to be a little bit different, okay, a lot different than those we typically have, but I think the information that we cover is some of the most useful that we have covered in our series. Emil graduated with a master's degree in family and marriage therapy in 1999 from Utah State University. He's a popular speaker for public and professional organizations and companies as he teaches his innovative communication and conflict resolution strategies from his book, You Can Turn Conflict into Closeness, Seven Communication Skills of Successful Marriages. That's a long time now. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, looking back on it, it kind of seems surreal because 20 years was a lifetime in 1999, it seemed anyway. So now I'm 50. That's a long time doing therapy stuff. That is. You've heard a lot of stories. Can you identify the moment when the idea came to you to develop a program from what you had learned counseling couples? Right. So... One of the things that we had to learn at school was we had to come up with our own model, right? In therapy, there's all sorts of therapy models and techniques and strategies, and we kind of had to choose one, right? Well, I didn't choose one. I created one because all the different theories and the different strategies and the techniques, they all made sense. But what I didn't get trained on, and this is terrible, but we don't get trained on how to deal with conflict. We become like the mediator of conflict. There's communication strategies like the reflective listening, right? The I statements. Well, research shows now that it's not even that effective. Like if you, if you like, one of the things I do is I follow Dr. Gottman. He actually makes a statement in his training for the trainers, for the therapist. And he's going, these I statements, they're nice I statement, reflective listening isn't really that effective because what's happening is they use the words as if it's a free pass to be a jerk. I feel like you're an idiot. I said a nice statement. So I can say whatever I want to say as long as I follow the thing and you can't get mad. And it's like, what are you talking about? You can't just, you know, cock a gun and shoot them with words that are going to hurt and expect them to not like be angry. Well, even more mild I statements don't work. Right. Like, I feel neglected when you do this. They still feel attacked. It just right. doesn't work. Right. And one of the things is, is I started to, well, two things. One, I'm a husband, right? I come from a family of nine boys. So when conflict happens, when you're a brother of nine boys, you cannot legally have conflict with your spouse like you do with your brothers. Okay. Oh, that was so funny. Cause that's you what I was thinking. Get in trouble. Yeah. Come out. That's right. <laughs> we start wrestling. Right. We fight and then we'll talk later, maybe. 
That's not the way it works in a relationship, okay? Unless you want to be single for a long time. So number one is I knew that as much as I had a heart and I wanted to connect in a really loving, romantic way, I was terrible when it comes to communication, especially when I got my feelings hurt. I didn't know what to do. I would panic. So first off, I knew I needed the tools and strategies for my own relationship, and so did my clients. And when I think about all the things I learned in the therapy, strategies and techniques, most of it was the therapist doing kind of the intervention. They're the ones that translate and mediate. And so they become reliant on the therapist. Now that's not helpful. Even in our therapy training, it was, hey, you want to make sure that they don't need you later. But then as far as like the techniques and training to help them become independent and being able to resolve like really tough issues, there's not a model. At least there's a theory, okay, but not tools and techniques. And for me, I needed some tools and techniques for my own relationship. So I became like the lab rat in therapy. The evolution of it was as I learned bits and pieces, okay, I would start to use those in my therapy. And then when I found that naturally, organically, I started to repeat myself over and over and over again. And the issues that my clients brought to me were being dealt with in a really nice way that was easy for people to understand these principles and concepts and apply them. I was like, wait a minute, I could probably package this and make it available for people who aren't going to see me as a therapist, but could sure use it at home with their loved ones. And so that's when the idea is put this program together. In preparation for this interview, I reread your book, which I've read two or three times right. in the past, and listened to your audiobook twice, <laughs> which fill the hours of a very long road trip. But as I reflected on the material, I asked myself, why am I still so bad at applying <laughs> your principles? You make it so easy and clear, yet when I find myself in a crucial conversation, my emotions flare rather than my intellect. Right. A second thought I had was that the principles we discussed today may be applied to most of our relationship and not just within marriages. Right. Any situation where there's conflict, every relational situation, whether it's with your kid, with your mom, with your cousin, with a neighbor, with it doesn't matter who it is. It could be a boss. It could be an employee. Conflict is really predictable. The process of conflict is so predictable that we can demystify it. And once we understand it, then we can have these strategies and tools. Now, the tools and strategies, like you say, when you read it, you're like, going, oh, this sounds so easy. Today was one of those moments when I had a lot of my clients saying the same thing. Emo. I'm trying to use these strategies, but when I'm in the situation, it seems like to evaporate from my mind. I just don't know if these principles are going to work for me. I said, okay, well, that's, that's a fair concern, right? And I said, imagine you were taking piano lessons, all right? And after going through how that song is played by your piano teacher, the piano teacher says, okay, now there's a recital in three weeks. And what I want you to do is I want you to practice this and practice this and practice this so you can do it like almost twice as fast so that you can relax and enjoy the recital. And boy, that recital is important to you. So you think about practicing it a lot. In fact, in your mind, you wonder how you would play that song. Well, three weeks goes by and you just think about it a lot. 
what's the likelihood of you being able to perform it when everybody's watching you? Like for some reason, Laura, people think that being introduced to the idea somehow qualifies them to be ninja ready for any situation that comes up. And then their their mind gets blown because they're like going, well, those skills are just not as easy to, to practice. So one analogy is, is the piano lessons, right? No one in their right mind would say, you know what, think about playing this song, and that's pretty much just as good as practicing. Right? No one would think that. But when it comes to communication, we make that mistake. You train for it, you'll be confident. You don't train for it, it ain't going to be there. And part of the training you provide is through worksheets, right? right? I've got but, worksheets, uh-huh. But also, you have to just, like, crash and fail, right? You know what? There's not a day that goes by that you can't practice this, mm-hmm. okay? Someone's going to complain, and they're not going to do it the right way. Someone's going to make a passive-aggressive statement. You're going to want to bring up an issue. There are practice moments every day, and so if the the mindset was, Instead of, I hope today goes smoothly. Instead, we go, I hope I get to practice. I'm going to look for an opportunity where I get to practice my new tools, my new skills, so that when it's game time, I'm going to be able to handle that with total confidence. And if we have that attitude, we're not going to be surprised in a situation because we're looking for the moment to use these tools. Because using the tools creates more confidence. Well, if I'm walking around with greater confidence, then my sense of self is growing. I'm not having that anxiety like I have to walk on eggshells or I have to worry about when my son attacks me or when my, when my husband gets on my case or when my wife, you know, complains. It's like, oh, this is my moment. It's time to practice. I feel like I can make flashcards now so right. I can pull them out. You've inspired me that I can actually do this with more practice. Right. Emil, could you give a brief overview to our listeners of your program and its seven principles? Sure. And what I'll do is, and this is something I wish I would have done in the book. You know, I'm looking at, you know, it's been five years or so since I the published book. I wish I would have taken it and broken it into situations rather than just the tools. So, for example, one of the first principles or techniques is assuming good intent. But that seems kind of like random, like assuming good intent. But I wish I would have said how to bring up an issue and sabotage or hijack their defensiveness. Well, that sounds so much more appealing than assuming good intent, right? So if I said, here are the tools, here are the situations, I need to complain. I need to bring up an issue. I need to share an opinion or a perspective. I need to say something. Well, when I bring up something, I say something, there are some skills I need to have in order to do that. So that the other person doesn't get defensive, which, of course, is just going to hijack the whole conversation. So that's one of the tools. Yeah, I feel like that's like the first three tools. Right, What you right. just said is that like section, that subheading. Because yeah. it starts with assuming good intent. Yep. And you begin your discussion with these words of wisdom. Uh-oh. And I want to <laughs> read them for you. The motivational root of all behavior can be classified into two groups, increased comfort and decreased pain. Increased pain is not one of them. Most people are doing the best they can. If you assume they aren't, you'll be wrong most of the time. I love that because we don't naturally go there. We're like, they're trying to hurt my feelings. Right. We literally, in that moment, our reasoning is shut down a little bit. Because we feel hurt, we actually translate their intentions to hurt us. 
But that doesn't make any sense because most people aren't trying to hurt. Now, there are moments when I'll ask someone point blank, when you said that to your spouse, were you trying to hurt him? And they'll say, yes, I was. Notice that's a surface area. And I go, and why were you trying to hurt him? Because I want them to feel what I felt. I want them to understand how much it hurt me. Oh, my. Oh, so you're not just, you know, running around causing pain. You're trying to communicate in a pathetic way. I'm just going to say it. Not a very effective way. You want them to feel and understand how you feel, which is your hope is to have a connection, which, of course, usually doesn't work, by the way. But that's what's organic. That's what naturally happens. And when we kind of sometimes follow the natural way, it usually doesn't work. In the book, you tell a parable about a neighbor's apple tree, and we don't have time to go over that in this interview. Right. But the purpose is to illustrate that we have invisible gremlins in our mind right. that play on our insecurities or weaknesses or preconceived beliefs that prevent us from naturally assuming good intent. Right. How do you suggest we go about exercising or getting rid of these gremlins? One of the things that you're going to have in the this in your on your podcast is going to be a, a place where people can get that worksheet, okay? Now that worksheet walks you through the steps of assuming good intent. When a person assumes good intent, they are literally changing the story they tell themselves about the facts. Okay, the facts aren't the story. There are data points in the story. Like I imagine a, an English teacher giving 12 facts and saying, write a story that has all these facts in it. Well, you'll have as many stories as you do as students, and they will range from, you know, villain to victor all the way across the board. And so you go, well, which one's the true story? They're based on facts, right? The facts are the building blocks of our stories. But what we're usually doing is we're, you know, I talk, we were talking about the gremlins. Those gremlins are the voice of the insecurities that interpret the facts. And those gremlins, they, they kind of are consulted by those insecurities. So it's kind of like this. The insecurity might say something like this. Well, your spouse knew that you were planning on doing this. And then they forgot. They must not care. They must not care at all. They're selfish, actually. How can you trust someone who's that? See, how we, I, can, I can build a really good story about how evil my wife is because she forgot something. Now. Have I forgotten something? Well, count the ways, right? I have forgotten so many things. Does that mean I don't care? Well, it could mean that I was distracted, I was preoccupied, or that I was lazy. I've been there a few times. Yes, it's true that I did not make that a high enough priority, but it doesn't mean I don't care. What I'm looking for is a pattern of behavior if the pattern of behavior is that I'm selfish and inconsiderate, well, then it probably does mean that I don't care. I'm not invested. But when we take an isolated incident and then define the characteristics of the other person as now they're selfish, inconsiderate, unsafe, untrustworthy, <gasps> now I panic. Getting the assuming good intent is taking the facts and then putting it into a context that paints them as loving people. And when we do that, when we assume good intent, when we tell the story in such a way that puts them in the most beautiful, noble, positive light, 
we become less hurt by their behavior. Now, it doesn't mean that their behavior is okay, because that's really important to know. We're not saying their behavior is okay. We're saying their intentions behind it are good. And if we see good intentions behind their behavior, we become less affected. We're not so hurt by it. And we're going to use that tool later when we assume good intent, when we're going to complain. And so we'll probably talk about that when we talk about communicating with a desired outcome in mind. And I think that's pretty exciting that we do get to complain later. Yes. (laughs) We're going to complain. You need to complain. If you don't complain, you're not sharing who you are. You're not sharing your feelings. You're not sharing your perspective. You mentioned in the section that assuming good intent is like putting on armor to protect Mm -hmm. our ego. Once our self-esteem and value is secured, then we are free to proceed with what is unnatural. And the unnatural thing is to not react, right? Right. The unnatural thing, well, actually, think about the unnatural thing is when we react. I think that's what you're saying is, is when we don't put our deliberate conscious mind into it, it's easy to take the consultation of our insecurities to tell us a story that may not be true, and then we use that as truth. Some people even say, well, that's my truth. Well, that doesn't make it true. When we And then we confuse things because now instead of me really seeing to the heart of my partner, I'm seeing through the weaknesses and insecurities of myself. And then that can really blur things. When I can really truly see the good intentions of the other person, it makes the other person feel safe to be vulnerable, even though they're not perfect. Because I know I'm not perfect. And when I make mistakes, I don't do it on purpose to be a jerk. Even though sometimes it might seem like it, I'm just kind of, I'm sarcastic or I'm passive aggressive. It's when my weaknesses start to slip out. If we assume good intent, even when people make mistakes, we can still maintain a connection. Maybe telling someone to assume good intent might seem overwhelming, but you included three core beliefs that are a little bit easier to accept than just saying, oh, he has good intentions. Do you want to review those? Sure. One of the things, so there's there's three, I call them presuppositions, like we need to, to believe that these things are true. If we believe these things are true, then it'll be more helpful for us to come up with a story that's compelling and believable. So when we assume good intent, we can't just make up a dumb story that's not convincing. It has to be a compelling story with these three criteria. One is, they want you to feel good. Okay, They want you to feel good. That's kind of a hard one to believe, but they truly do. Or at least they don't want to make you mad because if they make you mad, then it's going to make things worse. They want to feel good, the person who's saying it. Of course they want to feel good. That's the easy one to do. So they want to feel good. They want you to feel good. And in that situation, they're doing the best they can. Maybe they're tired. They haven't eaten anything. So they're a little bit irritable and ornery. They're not trying to push your buttons. They're not trying to get on your skin. But in that moment, they're doing the best they can. When we use those three criteria in the story that puts him in a positive light and it has to be compelling, now what we've done is we've literally changed our minds. We've assumed good intent instead of assuming ill intent, which is natural. Once we assume good intent, it doesn't even matter if we're right in a good place. And when I assume good intent on the other person and I'm wrong, they're still grateful that I assumed good intentions and painted them in a positive light even when they weren't shining so brightly. 
tell a story of <laughs> someone throwing a rock. Right. And I'm just like, I do this all the time. Yeah. Okay, tell that story. Well, how foolish would it be if someone threw a rock at you and they were going to miss, but you jumped in front of the rock and then said, oh, you hit me with a rock. Well, I know when we say that, like with a rock, we think that person seriously has problems. But if we look at ourselves in the mirror, how many times have we all done that? How many times has someone said something and we jump in front of it and then get, get insulted by it instead of going, oh, that rock would have missed me because it's not even true. So instead, what we do is, oh, you wounded me. Well, if it's not true, why would we be offended when in reality, they're operating out of their own weaknesses and fears? That whole idea of dodging a rock or not jumping in front of one is how we respond to someone who's being critical. So when someone's being critical, I, I kind of think of it as they're throwing a rock and they haven't really thought it through all the way. They're just feeling in a bad place. And so it's either a real or imagined hurt that they have. Either way, they're reacting out of it. I know this term sounds a little bit weird, but they're defending how they see themselves in that situation. And in their defense, they attack kind of like a scared cat, right? If you corner a scared cat, then it attacks. It's got its claws out and it hisses and it scratches at you. Even though it seems like an aggressive move, it's actually a defense. So it's an aggressive defense move. A rock is the criticism. Why jump in front of it if it isn't true? In fact, not jumping in front of it is the easiest way to avoid getting hurt. There's techniques in how to respond to criticisms in a way that you maintain your composure and your power without getting hurt. Your second principle is actually my favorite. Yeah. It's called defining and accepting reality. You're right. If people make decisions based on how they believe things should, should be. be rather than how they actually are, then they are acting on information that isn't real. Right. Duh. Right. But we do it all the time. Right. In psychology, when someone believes something that isn't real... We actually call that delusional, okay? We all do that. There's times when we think things should be a certain way. We'll even convince ourselves of the legitimacy of how things should be. And in a marital relationship and in your examples, mm -hmm. it functions a little bit differently. It's yeah. like, I know they're going to react this way. Right. Even though I wish that I wish they, they wouldn't, wouldn't right. react this way. Right. But I need to plan on them reacting the way they usually react right. rather than the way I want them to react. Right. So how does assuming good intent and defining and accepting reality alone help us right. communicate better? Assuming good intent puts us in a position of power that I will use later. The first thing it does is it kind of takes away the sting. Now, remember, it doesn't make the behavior okay. Because that's still, we need to complain. We still need to bring up an issue and say, hey, what you did wasn't okay. So we still have to confront them. But assuming good intent is going to be used in our complaint when we go to the third step of communicating with the desired outcome in mind. So we have assuming good intent and then defining and accepting reality. We need to define and accept reality because that's what gives us the perspective to start to explore, well, then what has to happen different? If this isn't the way I want it, how, how do I want it? 
as long as we don't accept the reality, we have no basis to create change. If, if I know that my spouse is going to handle a situation, for example, let's say my spouse, when the plans get changed, she gets very anxious. And when she gets anxious, she wants to control me and everything that's going on with my life, which I don't like. If I know that's going to happen when the plans are changed, thinking or hoping that things should be different next time is not a good strategy to create change. But if yeah. you anticipated that, you could say, hey, Teresa, things are changing. And I just wanted to give you the heads up so you could be emotionally prepared for this. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, so she, what does she do? She's kind of get a little bit of anxious. And so I'm not going to expect her not to be anxious. So I'm going to walk her through, hey, this is the plan that I've got. This is how we'll handle it. We're going to do this instead of that. And then we'll circle back around. We'll get to the thing that you were really worried about. Does that sound okay? And now my wife might be a little nervous about it, but she's going, okay, I can handle this. But expecting her to not be anxious or try to control the situation actually is going to make me frustrated because I'm not lining my expectations with reality. And when my expectations are in reality clash, that's when I get frustrated. That's when I say or do something to make the situation worse. So using that example, let's say I don't accept the reality and my wife gets upset. Notice how not helpful this will be. Honey, you know what? This is really frustrating. Every time where the plans are changed, what do you do? You get upset and try to control me. You know what? You just got to relax and quit freaking out about things. Laura, that would never work, right? She is going to be so offended and so hurt by it. So she's going to put me in the cage, right? She's going to ice me out. And she's going to be justified in her story because I'm being a jerk. I'm not supporting her. She's not trying to cause a problem. She's just having a hard time adapting to the change. Well, if I know that, then I can plan for that. And if I plan for that, then my expectations line up with reality and I'll be okay. Is it inconvenient at times? Yes. But fighting reality means I lose 100% of the time. You mentioned communicating with the desired outcome in mind. This sounds intuitive. Right. But when emotions run high, it's often far from our minds. You use the analogy of building a house with blueprints in right. your chapter. Our communication needs to include what a person would need to see, right. hear, and experience in order to elicit a certain behavior. Your last step in the section I call preparatory uh -huh. to actually dealing with conflict mm -hmm. is clear, direct, and sensitive communication. The power that comes through in your communication, you say, does not come from the volume of your voice, but in the heartfelt sincerity and sensitivity of what you say. Yeah. When we communicate, if we're not thinking those three things, is it clear, direct, and sensitive? Oftentimes, our communication can come across as manipulative or confusing. So clear, does the message make sense to somebody who wouldn't be there? Is it direct? Do they know that I'm talking to them? Okay, have I addressed them? Have I got their attention? And as I'm saying it, do I say it in a sensitive way? It doesn't have that little edge to it of frustration. It's sensitive. So if I'm asking for something, hey, babe, I want to finish reading this book. Um, would you mind helping me 
finish these dishes tonight in the next 10 minutes. As soon as I got their attention, okay, it's direct. It's clear they know exactly what I'm expecting and I'm sensitive about it. Compare that to this one. That's not clear. It's not direct and it's not sensitive. Gosh, I sure wish I had help tonight. Sure be great if I had someone helping me out. Okay, number one, it's not clear. What do they need help with? It's not direct. It's not directed to anyone. And it's manipulative. It's passive aggressive. It's a guilt trip. Yeah, I bet you do want that. See ya. Yep. (laughs) Good luck with that one. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And so making sure we catch their attention, we send the message, and we say it in a way that assumes that they would be happy to help us if they could. But then accepting reality also means that there may be times when they can't. They're over their head with something, a project that they're working on, or they have to be leaving in five minutes. So instead of being hurt and offended by the reality, we understand. Hey, you know what? Some other time. Because the reality is, is if they could help, they would help. And if they're not helping, there's probably some reason why they're not. And don't assume. Find out. We can't always count on the other person communicating. Because maybe they didn't read the book. Maybe they didn't learn the process. Maybe it's your mom and she's, there's no way she's reading the book. When we follow the principles and strategies, we don't even need their participation. We don't even need their awareness. What we're doing is we're accepting the reality and we're using the reality to inform us of what we need to do to create the outcome that we want. A lot of times I hear, the only person you can change is yourself. You can't change anyone else. And then they put a period right there. It's like they're done with the book. Well, if they believe that, then what happens is they abandon their influence in creating change in the other person. See, every connection we have influence. We can increase our influence by increasing the connection. The greater the connection, the more we can do a correction. Instead of saying, well, I just don't, I can't change anybody but myself and then give up on it. Instead, say, well, what do I want the outcome to be? Given reality, what role or influence do I have if I did certain things within honesty and love, so it's not manipulative, that helps them? How can I behave and what can I do to increase the outcome that I want? And that's maximizing our influence. Once we understand how these principles and strategies work, we don't even need the participation of the other person to make them effective. Sometimes we go, well, then what do we do? If we're doing everything we can, the other person still isn't going to be kind and sensitive. What if the other person doesn't care enough to invest in the relationship? Well, we go back to assuming good intent, defining and accepting reality. Well, if the reality is, is that no matter how good you are, they don't make you a priority, what are you going to do about it? Begging, complaining, pointing out the fault, probably won't work. And so we have to accept the reality. And sometimes accepting the reality means we have to do something drastically different. Now we get to the really great part of the book where you give us tools. Right. So your next section is killing criticisms or dodging bullets. Dodging bullets. How do we kill criticisms? A criticism, like Laura and I were talking about, like that rock, that experience where someone throws a rock at you. Well, what we want to do is we want to dodge the rocks, even if they're aimed right at us. And we dodge that rock by doing something completely contrary to what we normally would do. 
usually when we get a criticism, what we want to do is we want to defend ourselves, point out how it's not fair or, or true. Well, when we do that, we actually discount or challenge and defend ourselves and make them feel uh, attacked or counterattacked. When we defend ourselves, we're not embracing the truth of a criticism, which is what really works. So instead of defending ourselves, we do something crazy. We embrace the part of the criticism that is true. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. When you kill a criticism like that, the criticism dies. Every time we get a criticism and we defend ourselves, we keep that criticism in circulation. It goes right back to the person who was offended and they use it again. They literally can say the same thing over and over again in the same conversation. You're not caring about my feelings. And what does the person say? They explain themselves. Well, I'm doing the best that I can. I, I, you know, I can't, you can't fault me when I'm trying, but you're not meeting my emotional needs. They're just going to say it over and over again. If we agree with what's true, they don't know what to do. So you know what? You're not being sensitive. You're not meeting my emotional needs. And if I said, you know what? You're right. I haven't been very sensitive these past few days, and I'm really not doing a very good job meeting your emotional needs. What does the other person say? Well, they can't recirculate it because it doesn't make any sense. It's already been validated. It's like cashing a check. If you cash a $300 check, you can't do it again the next day. It won't make any sense. You've already got your value out of it. And so we literally kill a criticism by validating that criticism. We don't explain it. We don't justify or rationalize minute. We don't do any of that stuff. We just own what's true so that they, the person who's critical, can say the next piece. They may say another criticism. And there's only four statements that they can make. But the one, the first one, that one, that criticism is the hardest one to deal with. And that's why I call it my, have it my own chapter, killing criticisms. When we kill the criticism, we take control in the situation, which is usually really weird because when someone's critical, it seems like they're the one in control. But as soon as we agree with what's true, whatever is true about it, they reach a dead end. They don't know where to go. And usually they get that like deer in the headlights look like, well, I don't know where to go from here. They've never experienced a hundred percent validation to the part that's true. There's always been an excuse or a justification or, you know, some reason why they do it. And then that takes them on a goose chase of their excuse. But if we just own what's true, it's over. Now, sometimes we're criticized. And it's not true. When it's not true, instead of saying, well, that's not true, that's defensive. We don't go defensive. If it's not true, then we ask, well, what do you mean? Why would you say that? That puts the responsibility on the person who's being critical to take a step back and go, well, they'll either ask a question, they'll make a declaration, or they'll issue another criticism in a different angle, a different um, perspective. Well, you haven't talked with me all day. Well, that might be true, but that doesn't mean I'm being mean. So if they say, you've been mean, and you go, well, what do you mean I've been mean? Well, you haven't talked to me all day. You see how they're not the same thing. I can't say, you're right, I'm being mean. No, I'm not being mean. So when he says, you're being mean, that's not true. Well, what do you mean? Well, you haven't talked with me all day. Well, that's true. I really haven't been talking to you all day. Well, then they're, what are they going to do? They're going to go, yeah, and it hurts my feelings. That's a declaration. Or they can ask a question. Well, why haven't you been talking to me? Or they can make another criticism. Well, you don't even care how I feel then. Okay? That's a criticism. Once you realize that conflict is no longer this overwhelming mystery, there's four statements in conflict. That's it. 
They're predictable. We know what's going to happen. It's kind of like fencing with four moves. I call it fencing conflict because when someone's attacking, imagine if they only had four moves. Well, then if I'm prepared on how to defend all four moves, all four attacks, then I can I can handle whatever they throw at me. So You use the term fogging in right. your book. What does that mean? So fogging is another example to explain the idea of killing criticisms. When you agree with the criticism, okay, you become fog because the criticism does not devalue your worth. You have infinite worth. Having weaknesses does not minimize your value. When we defend ourselves, we literally are buying into a lie that our lovability is directly related to our fallibility. And in panic, we defend ourselves to try to prove that we're lovable, which is actually the opposite thing. As soon as we defend ourselves, we actually come across as a jerk, which doesn't make us more lovable. If I embrace the truth of it, I let it go right through me. There's no hurt. There's no pain. When I'm fog, I'm not going to take offense by someone's criticisms because two things are going on. If they're approaching me with some animosity, with some mm, some spice to it, then they, assuming good intent, are coming out of a place of fear, hurt. Well, if I respond defensively, then I'm not addressing their fear or hurt. But when I agree with what's true of that statement, then I'm addressing their fear and hurt. And then they're going to have that sense of validation, which creates some confusion. They're like, so you agree that you haven't been talking to me all day. And then they get that curiosity, like, uh, I don't know what to do. So that's when they usually ask, so, so why? And then that's when we explain the reasons why. It doesn't make it okay, but we have an explanation. Yeah, I love what you're saying in your book. At this stage where you're killing criticism, you right. don't apologize. Right. You just admit to the part that's true. Because if you do apologize, that doesn't create closeness. In fact, sometimes that just ends the conversation with you being a jerk. I've had a lot of thoughts and feedback about that. It's quite divided. Some people say, no, you should apologize right away. And those people are craving that sense of validation. But what they don't realize is that premature apologies shut down the conversation. And so even those people that want an apology, they'll also recognize that if it's given too soon, then they don't trust the apology anyway. So I like to think of an apology as like the sprinkles on a cupcake. After we validated, so imagine my wife says she's upset with me for something I did, and I validate that part. I say, honey, you're right. I wasn't very sensitive. In fact, what I said in front of our friends was rude. I made you look terrible in front of our friends. That is not okay. Give it a beat. Let it sink in. Sink in. Really just soak in there. Let the validation soak in. And if she doesn't say something, then I'm going to say, honey, I'm sorry. But if I go, honey, you're right. I, I, I threw you right under the bus in front of our friends. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay? Notice what I'm doing is I'm shutting it down. I'm saying we're done with the conversation, which could make her feel unvalidated in the process of me agreeing. So I need to give it a little bit of time, a little bit of space. So when I say I'm sorry, it's a different statement. It's not, hey, I'm trying to sneak out the back door. I'm taking accountability, but I got to hurry so I don't feel bad. I'm going to let it sink in and then, hey, I'm really sorry about that. That was more heartfelt and it has a, a sense of a, there's, there's some potency to the apology Instead of using the apology as a 
get out the back door real quick kind of strategy. Plus, if she's really mad, she probably wants to throw a couple more criticisms right. at you to get, you know, more validation. Yeah, because she Yeah, and it. you're a jerk this way and this way and this way, and she's got to get that out. Exactly. You don't want to leave her unfulfilled. Well, because what happens if she doesn't get it out, it's going to be resentment. And that's going to leak out in every interaction she has with me, even when she's trying to be really good. And so some people go, gosh, what do I do if there's, like you're saying, I call it the avalanche. I go, bake a cake and celebrate it. Because if your spouse is going to dump on you all of these criticisms, you're doing something really good. You're making her feel like, wait a minute, you're listening? You're hearing me? You're validating me? Well, before I run out of time, I want to hurry up and get all these other validations. And you literally can like speed up the process of creating closeness when you can handle the landslide. Because lovability doesn't come from fallibility. Okay, think about what I'm saying. If we believe that our lovability has something to do with our weaknesses, then we can only take criticism so long because on the third or fourth or 15th criticism, we break. And then what do we do? We get defensive. You know what? I'm not going to stand here all day and listen to you tear me down. Well, why not? Why not just humbly take accountability for your faults? Because if I respond with, you know what? I've listened to enough of these today. I'm not taking it anymore. Do you think your spouse is going to say, good point. I didn't give you a chance to really process those concerns. No. But what if I say, hey, what else is bothering you? What else is going on? Well, you've done this and you've done that. And you, you know what I have? And I, I can see I can, how I continue to do that. And that got to be really hurtful. Humbly taking accountability is lovable. I could go through 30 criticisms my spouse has for me. And if I'm humbly acknowledging the truth of it, embracing it, not with pride, but embracing with humility and recognizing how it's not helpful in a relationship, by the end of those 30 criticisms, I have validated her 30 times. Every validation creates a chemical reaction of oxytocin release, which is the bonding hormone. So even though she's got 30 reasons why I should just be punched, she falls back in love with me. Because I validated and understand her in a humble and accountable way. So it's not the number of weaknesses. It's how I handle the weaknesses, how I handle the criticisms that makes me lovable. And going back to communicating with the desired outcome in mind, mm -hmm. the outcome we want is closeness, not to prove our innocence. Right. Which is so interesting because we think that logically, if we prove our innocence, then their hurt or their anger is unjustified. And they will magically recognize it and feel terrible and apologize for getting their feelings hurt in the first place, which we have to accept reality is not the reality. Looking at the outcome that we want, we want closeness. We want intimacy. We want that sense of security that comes from being known and accepted. So these tools that we have in the book are designed to create that closeness. And for some of you who are going, gosh, this kind of sounds lopsided. How come one person does all the work? Well, it starts with you. Why would your spouse want to do all this work if they don't feel like it's going to make a difference? When you show them how delicious you are in that connection, they're going to want to create some correction. They want that closeness. But if you're going to be spicy in your delivery of what you wish was different, that doesn't sound delicious. That doesn't sound appealing. 
So all they do is use that criticism as a fact to support their story about how they don't want to be close to you. That's not where we want the outcome to be. We next have fencing conflict. Why do you use that metaphor? So the fencing conflict is how we handle those four statements, criticisms, questions, declarations, and commands. Fencing was a model that made sense to me when I was a kid uh, in high school. They were doing a fencing demonstration. And in that fencing demonstration, the fencing back and forth, back and forth seemed like absolute chaos, right? Like dangerous chaos. And at the end of the, uh, the assembly in high school, they said, whoever wants to learn how to fence, stay after school and we're going to go in the gym and learn. I'm gonna, me and my buddies were like, oh yeah. And so we go to the gym and they show us that the fencing was nothing more than these four moves. They would just repeat them and randomly go back and forth between the four moves. And I went, oh my gosh. So when I was thinking about this concept of dealing with conflict, when we are in conflict, it seems like absolute random chaos, a thousand different attacks. So there's no way there would be a way to respond in a, co- in a cohesive way with confidence. You just can't anticipate what the other person's going to do. Well, once we learn that there's only four attacks, and then we learn how to parry, that's what they call it, in each attack, we do it slow motion, and next thing you know, we're going back and forth like the three musketeers with complete confidence because four parries, four attacks. We can do this back and forth all day long and no one's getting hurt. So that's where the fencing concept comes from. And when we have that idea about fencing, well, now I can handle any situation, no matter who it is that kind of confronts me. What are the components or techniques of communication fencing? You mentioned there's only four moves. That's right. So the four moves are tacks, are criticisms, a statement about you or your behavior, questions, a request for information, declarations, a statement about the person speaking, or the general description of the situation, and the fourth one is a command. There's only those four. You'll, what we're going to do is we're gonna, I'm going to have a cheat sheet for you that you can print off that has all four of those things and the four responses. When a criticism, a statement about your beha- you or your behavior comes, we talked about that in Killing Criticisms, we agree with the element of truth. That's the hardest one because it's attacking our insecurities. It's poking our insecurities and we, we hate that. So we want to defend ourselves. But if we can overcome that and embrace what's true, our confidence goes up, our insecurities go down, which is super, super nice. That's a bonus. So that's how we deal with criticisms. The other three, questions. So the question is, is a request for information. If the person is being mostly reasonable, okay, because no one's 100% reasonable in a conflict. But if they're mostly reasonable, we just answer the question. If they're kind of spicy, like where we can't really tell if they really want to hear what we have to say, then we're going to ask, well, do you really want to know? I'm not going to say that in a pious, delicate, well, you seem upset. Do you really want to know? Because that's kind of patronizing. I'm going to, it's called mimesis. I'm going to kind of match the intensity of the question. Well, do you really want to know? When I say, do you really want to know? I'm implying that there's actually a reason without saying what the reason is. So now the other person has to acknowledge that there is a reason, and then they have to decide if they want to know. Because if they say no, then that's closed-minded. No one wants to admit they don't really want to know. 
it puts a lot of social pressure on them to say yes. Now, that doesn't mean they're always going to say yes. Sometimes they can say no because they're flooded. They're too upset to hear it. And if they're too upset to hear it, then why would we share it? Because if we share it and they're too upset, then they're not going to hear it, right? It just doesn't make any sense. But when we say, do you really want to know? Oftentimes, that forces the frontal cortex, the decision-making to go, okay, do I want to know? And in the process of them evaluating, do they want to know? Then that's maybe all it takes for them to go, well, yeah, I want to know. And that makes them a little bit more reasonable. So when you actually answer the question, they have a higher likelihood of receiving the answer. To not like make you think that this is some kind of a, you know, recipe. I want you to remember that at every turn, at every response, that person always has four statements that they can choose from. So just because I answer the question doesn't mean we're getting closer to a resolution. They could go right back to a criticism. They could use it to make a declaration. They could ask another question. Okay. Questions is the second one. The third one is a declaration. Now, the nice thing is these get easier and easier as you go. A declaration is a statement about the person speaking. I, we, this, that, it. Um, those are kind of a key to recognizing that's a declaration. Now, there's, I can make it even more simple for you. If it's not a criticism that starts with the word you, and it's not a question with requesting information, guess what? It's a declaration or a command. And it doesn't matter either one. Just remember, it's a declaration. And if I got a declaration, this is the easiest one. I love this one. All we have to do is capture the emotion that's being expressed and tie it to what they're experiencing that makes them feel that way. Let's say some, a wife says, or I don't know, I always say wife, but let's say I say, I can't do this anymore. I've absolutely had it. Okay. Notice I'm talking about me and my experience. So my wife could say, what's the emotion Emil's got? Emil seems like he's exhausted. He's frustrated. He's upset. He's reached his limit. So then she'll, she'll say something like, Emil, I can totally see that you're absolutely upset. You're angry. You've reached your limit. You just can't do it anymore because, and then she explains the process of why I feel that way. Now, she may not agree with that at all, but that's not the point. The point is for her to understand why I feel the way that I do. So let me make it clear. This is a confusion for people. Criticisms I validate by agreeing with what is true. Nothing more, nothing less. Declarations I validate the emotion with no agreement or disagreement required. I'm just understanding their feelings. So both of them are a form of validation. When the person uses a criticism, they use the criticism because their frontal cortex, they need validation of the facts. When someone's saying, I feel, I think, I want, we need to, they need emotional validation. So it's almost like based on what they say, we can see their cards of what they need. It, it tells us clearly how to respond. Someone can say the same message four different ways, but based on how they say it, it tells us how to respond. For example, you don't listen to me criticism. See, it starts with the word you. Why don't you listen to me? Okay. That's a question. I don't feel heard. Declaration. Command. Listen to me. Even though the message is the same, they don't feel heard. How they say it gives us the key to respond in a powerful way 
to maximize our influence in creating the closeness from the conflict. So we can't just treat them all the same. They're different, and they're different because they're coming from a different part of their brain. One's emotional, one's um, logical. One point you made in the chapter that I found was really interesting is that you should meet the emotion, and you repeated it here, only just to step down. Right. So my question, and and that is not intuitive because you think, okay, this person's really upset, so I should just be really calm. Right. So my question, though, is what if the other person is maybe crying? Right. Then how do you respond? Because they want to see emotion from you, but maybe guys don't want show right. any emotions so so right. what are we doing that in, in in those in those situations what we're trying to do is show a sense of sincerity in the intensity of whatever emotion is let's say my wife is crying and i think it's a bunch of baloney okay i don't think it's reasonable i, I can't even understand it but what i can do is i can be sincere in my emotion i can say i can see that you're in a real bad place i don't agree with it in my mind, I'm thinking, you're trying to milk me or something out of this, okay? But I, that's not the point. That's not the time to have that conversation. Because if she's crying, the likelihood of her saying, you're right, is not that is 0%, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to where she's at. I'm emotionally trying to connect with where she's at. I don't have to agree with it. I'm showing my sincerity of trying to understand it, not my support that I agree with the, the reasons why they're sad. Honey, I can see that you really, really are hurt right now. You really feel like I have not made you a priority. That validation may be all she needs to feel, ah, you get it. Now, I get it, but it doesn't mean I agree, okay? Because I may totally disagree with the story she told herself about the fact. And so once her emotions aren't hijacking her reasoning, well, then she'll be more open to an explanation. And then we're going to be able to go, oh... She might be able to say, oh, I can see, yeah, so you, I can see how you didn't intend to hurt my feelings, and in fact, I kind of read into it. I'm going to validate her her feeling, but I can see why you would have thought what you thought, especially since I didn't communicate that very clearly, or because on the, I was on the tail end of being rude to you last night, and so I can see why you would have thought that I was being rude. Whatever the story is, to make her emotional experience make sense. It doesn't mean it's valid in terms of evidence to provide support for their emotion, because that could be the story. But I do need to understand the reasoning behind it so that I can help her feel validated in her emotions. Because if I don't, there's no connection. No connection, no correction. Your concluding chapter is called Disarming Landmines. Who doesn't want to do that? That sounds so empowering. It's like, Okay, I've learned in the midst of conflict how to parry right. through my fencing skills, but this way we don't even have to go there. I can right. stop them at the get-go. Right. So what's the crux so of the skill? When we get to a situation where there's an issue that gets keep brought getting brought up, uh say, you know, my parents' involvement in our relationship, or where we go on vacation, or I mean fill in the blank. If there's a repeated issue and it just keeps cycling through, I'm going to call that a landmine because it's there and we keep stepping on it and it blows things up and then it has a magical way of resetting itself. So the next time we have that conversation, it blows up again. So those issues need to be resolved. 
If we don't resolve those issues, then they interfere with our ability to navigate and move around freely. We, we become so overwhelmingly, so hypersensitive to not setting off a landmine that we can't even relax and be ourselves. There's a few steps in disarming the landmine. And we can use these steps on the heels of fencing conflict. So when we have this whole fencing conflict thing, fencing conflict does not resolve the issue. It just helps us understand each other more. So I can use fencing conflict and then go right to disarming a landmine. Sometimes we've been through the process of the landmine so many times, this, this issue so many times, it's like we just haven't resolved it. The process of resolving is, is one person needs to define what the landmine is. They bring it up, you know, hey, um, I'm frustrated because when we get home from a vacation, you grab your purse and then you go in the house and you don't do anything to come and help me unpack anything. It feels like the responsibility is all mine. And so what I want to do is I want to resolve that issue so it no, it no longer is an issue for us. After I define it, I'm the first one, whoever defines it is the first one to try to understand the other person's perspective. No matter how many conversations I've had in the past, that doesn't mean I totally understand where they're coming from because oftentimes I don't listen to what they're saying because I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. So I go, let me see if I understand this situation from your perspective. You feel like when we get home, you need to get things ready for like a meal or something to kind of get us back on the flow of um, getting back to normal life. And I'm the one that, you know, knows where all the camping gear, or all the outdoor stuff goes. And so you just expect me to put those things away. And then when I bring everything on the inside, then I'm a grown up. I should be able to help put things away. You want me to take the responsibility to kind of from the time I get home, do my part and kind of divide and conquer. Is that right? Now, when I check in to see if I'm right, that's when they correct me. So my wife might say, well, well, actually, I all I need you to do is bring everything in the house. I don't need you to put anything away in the house. Bring the cooler in. Help me, you know, I'll, un, I'll get it all taken care of. Then you clean it, wipe it out and put it away. And then everything that goes in the garage, you put away. Anything that goes in the house, I'll put away. Well, son of a gun, I'm getting a good deal. So now I'm going, oh, with that information, I can create a solution single-handedly. Okay. But before I do that, I got to make sure that she understands me. Now, in the process of me kind of, you know, other conversations I've had, once she feels understood, then I can say, do you, do you want to know things from my perspective? And she, she may even already ask, well, what do you think? How do you think, um, you know, why are you so upset about this? And I might say, well, I feel like the lion's share of the responsibility is when I get home and then I have to put everything away. But when you tell me that you don't expect me to put everything away inside the house, see, I thought that, that, that you wanted me to do that too. And so I was feeling really, un, you know, it was unfair. And she's going, well, Actually, I thought, wow, you're amazing. I'm not even expecting it. You're putting it all away. And I'm like, oh, I feel like a jerk now, right? But now she, now that we understand each other's expectations, I put everything away on the outside, clean out the car. She takes care of all the bags, all the suitcases. She does the laundry. She does everything that she needs to do. Now, with that understanding, we both have a resolution. This one has a really easy solution. What's my role to make sure that this is no longer an issue? It is never going to be. She doesn't have to do anything different. I am going to put everything away on the outside of the house and I bring everything else and put it in front of the laundry room. And when I get that done, I'm done. Well, after I wipe out the cooler and put it away, I'm done. I'm good. I go watch a show, read a book, whatever. I am done. And guess what? I don't even complain anymore. 
I'm good. Now she can say, well, I here's my solution. I'm going to make sure I remind you. I'm going to let you know, hey, babe, I'm going to get some things going on in the kitchen. I'm going to get, you know, things prepared so that we can, you know, I'll put everything away once you get in the house. And so now don't worry about anything about putting anything away on the inside of the house. Well, now we have a mutual understanding. We agree. And now if I do my part, I'm good. If she does her part, we're good. So it's not like if you, then I'll. I'm going to do this. You do this. We are double covered. So now no longer an issue. So now when I come home from a trip, I'm not thinking, well, I wonder what's going to happen this time. Am I going to get any help? Instead of me, you know, you know, walking around all now I'm like going, I know exactly what my role is. We are totally on the same page. And so when I walk in, I can give her a kiss and tell her how beautiful she is. And I go back in the garage and get more stuff and put it away because we're on the same page. We understand each other's roles and rules. And once we have those expectations clear and mutually identified and expectations all dialed in, well, when expectations are decided, then I can reduce the likelihood of getting frustrated and disappointed because just meet my roles and rules. Expectations, no frustrations. Email, I love your program, even though I freely admit I'm really not very good at it. It doesn't come natural yet. It doesn't come natural to me, but I do after this, you know, getting back into the book and, and listening to the audio tape, which I really love. I feel like I can do it this time. And some of the examples that we've shared today maybe sound like, oh, yeah, that's really nice. But I have real problems. Right, right. So what would you say to that? I have real problems and you're talking to me about who's emptying the cooler. Right. From a party. Oftentimes, you know, when someone says, gosh, those I wish I had those problems. To make it less heavy, I choose light issues. The thing is, is the problems aren't the problems. The problems are the the process. Every issue that you have in the relationship can be discussed in a way that creates greater closeness. And I mean that from 10 years of infidelity. When you have a mutual understanding, it creates a sense of closeness. Now, that does not create a sense of trust, okay? But you can actually have a conversation about something that potent, that destructive in the relationship without it turning to a fist fight or a word fight. Because when you use these tools, you become more confident, you get better information so that you can make decisions that are going to be the best for you and for the relationship. Sometimes those decisions may mean that you move on. But what I found for the most part, when there hasn't been huge infidelity, when there hasn't been a huge betrayal, when it's just the angst and the frustration and the hurt and the resentment of years and years and years of not knowing how to resolve issues. Once we use this process, it begins to create the closeness right away. We don't have to deal with 80% of the issues in order to feel close. The closeness is a result of the process and not a consequence of the resolution. Most of the time, you find that you don't even need a resolution because once you're understanding each other, you're like, oh, well, that makes sense now. So when people say, well, those aren't very big problems. Yeah, they're not. I'm not going to say they are. There's way worse problems. But it isn't the problem that's the problem. It's the way you go about solving them. I love that. This has been a wonderful discussion. We have time for just one question and comment from a listener in Kaysville, Utah, which is where I live, but it's not a question from me. 
This listener has read your book several times and worked at implementing and communicating strategies. So unlike in other episodes, she has had an opportunity to really digest your book's contents over time. So here's her comment. I call Emil Harker's book my marriage Bible. I refer back to it often, and I can honestly say it is the reason my husband and I are so happy in our marriage. Here's her question. Is there anything you wished you included that you didn't? Oh, you mentioned yeah. changing things around, but is there oh, more There's material yes, yes. you'd like to put in your book? In fact, it's brand new. So, for example, like this year, during the summer, I had a conversation with my son on the way to Lake Powell. So I got my two boys that are adults, and he's driving. He says, Dad, why are people defensive? Why do people get defensive? Why do they react instead of just act responsibly. And I started to walk him through. And the more I talked about it, the more questions he had. And it literally started to take all of these little insights and create a model of defensiveness. And I kept on exploring that and exploring that. And how when we understand why people get defensive, it unlocks our mind to create self-love. And some people think, man, How does, wait, hold on, defensiveness, overcoming self-love, how does that even relate? But that's one of the chapters I want to put in there. It's the model of defensiveness, because once we understand the model of defensiveness, why we get defensive, and how it hijacks our own self-esteem, because every time I get defensive, I'm literally protecting my insecurities. So if I understand that my defensiveness makes my life worse, all of a sudden the tools in the book come alive. It's like, oh, so that's why I do this tool this way. That's why I approach it this way. So one issue would be the defensive model. The other one is the model. I call it the defensive cycle. The other one's the model of the inevitability of conflict. When we understand the inevitability of conflict, so no matter how much we try to manage expectations, and we look at all of the different issues that are going on with our humanness, the weaknesses that we have, what we realize is, is conflict is inevitable. Well, if conflict is inevitable, then it makes sense to train for it in a way that we can turn that conflict into closeness. I have another one for you. Bring it. If you're taking suggestions. Yes. What I else saw you made a video for Facebook Live once on right. boundaries. Oh, yeah. And it was revelatory yeah. for me. Just revelatory. I'm right. like, I have never thought about it. That's a good, that's, I should put that in the chat. That too. way, just because just I've thrown that teaser out, you right. should probably talk about it for a oh, minute. Yeah. When people use the term boundaries, it doesn't seem like people agree on what that even means, but everyone pretends they know what they're talking about when they talk about boundaries. Boundaries are the rules that we have for how we want to be treated. And that can be very confusing because sometimes that means that our boundaries are the instructions for other people for how they should treat us. Now, pause. Says, yeah. That's pause right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the mistake comes. Yeah. Because what happens is, is notice, I, it sounds like I'm saying the same thing. Boundaries are the rules that I have for how I want people to treat me, not for them to change the way they treat me. So they're going to have their own little thing. So what I do with my boundaries is I decide how I'm going to interact with people based on how they treat me and my boundaries. The people that support and strengthen my boundaries are the people that I kind of embrace inside my boundaries, right? They become 
trusted. The people that don't respect my boundaries, if I focus my energy on what they need to do to fit my boundaries, well, I've lost control. I can't tell people what they need to do. I invite them to connect with me with these expectations. They can choose to do it or choose to not do it. How they respond to the invitation to support my boundaries gives me information on how I will invest or not invest in that relationship. Boundaries are for me. They're not for everybody else. Thank you for everything you've said today. I've enjoyed this discussion. Emil mentioned a couple of times about some worksheets and cards to help us. So let me go over where you can find some of these resources first. You can find Emil on Facebook at Emil Harker. He also has a website, emilharker.com. Super easy. And if you live in the United States, you can click on the button free book and get this book free. You just have to pay for shipping. The worksheets that will help you work through these principles are not on his website. But if you go to LDSperspectives.com, there will be a link on the show notes where you can download those for free, including that card that yes. Emil has mentioned several times. We'll talk again. Thank you Sounds so awesome. much. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.